1: We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the Atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives.
0: Okay, Shiloh, we are back, and we're doing sections 133 and 134 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Like many podcasts before, uh, we will often look at these and we'll say, oh, you know, I think this will be a short one. So here we goes. We're, <laughs> we've got another one that we think might be on the shorter side. We'll see what happens when we actually get into the discussion. <laughs> <laughs> so section uh, 133 and 134, these sections are where we break chronologically from where we've been going with uh, the sections for quite a while now. Section 133 is a throwback to 1831. Basically, this revelation for one reason or another wasn't included as the regular Doctrine and Covenants, put in as an appendix. And then later with revisions of the Doctrine and Covenants, they now just went ahead and gave it its own section number. And since all the numbers were taken by others and we didn't want to throw things out of order, they just put it at 133. This section really finds itself Linguistic, not linguistically, maybe just like vocabulary wise and uh, topically, and just kind of the feel and flow of it, um, uh, the language used in it really finds itself more comfortably, I would say, in the first half of the Doctrine and Covenants rather than the latter half. Like I said, the topics that it treats and the way that it talks about the coming and the preparation and the restoration and, and all the things that are to happen harkens back to some of those earlier years and, and revelations. So we'll get into to some of that. There's probably not a whole lot here that touches on things that we haven't already discussed. It really is a review of a lot of those discussions and topics and phrases that are used in the first half of the Doctrine and Covenants. Then we get to section 134, which is one of those sections that is explicitly not a revelation. There's not a whole lot of them, but there's a few throughout. And 134 is one of those. It's explicitly not a revelation. 134 holds its own special status. It's special not revelation status (laughs) (laughs) above some of the others. And so we'll discuss that as we get into it. it. It is explicitly an opinion. So it is interesting that it has... Uh, perpetually been included in the doctrine covenant since eighteen thirty five, even while it has been explicitly regarded as an opinion of the saints, it's it's uh, it's more of a declaration of of belief than it is a statement of doctrine. So that's kind of of interesting, almost a, a fleshing out of of say uh, article of faith twelve. Right, Shiloh, does that trigger you? <laughs>
1: Oh my goodness. Yeah. The 12th (laughs) article of faith. You know, I I still think that article that I wrote is on the very first on the front Google page. If you Google 12th article of faith, I still think it pulls up on the front page of LDS Liberty. Yeah. It's
0: been around for a while. It's got a lot of SEO uh, links, (laughs) right? (laughs) So yeah, starting in here to uh, section 133, this is, like I said, this wasn't originally... Um, included as a part of the Doctrine and Covenants, it was put in the appendix. Why? It's not necessarily really clear. But um, one of the first things that kind of stood out to me that I thought it was interesting, and I actually ended up going to my Italian translation of the Doctrine and Covenants to see if it brought any insight to this. And unfortunately, it didn't, <laughs> but um, is, is in verse two. <laughs> and verse two says this, he says, The Lord who shall suddenly come to his temple the lord who shall come down upon the world with a curse to judgment yea upon all the nations that forget god and upon all the ungodly among you okay so here we have this phrase that that stood out to me and it's this with a curse to judgment there's different ways that this could be taken and i think the the probably the obvious um, way and, and probably maybe even the way that was, was intended is that this is kind of a vengeful type of coming, right? Christ is coming and his coming is bringing a curse and, and also judgment, right? But for some reason, when I read it through this time, it stuck out to me as like, wait, there is a slightly different way that this could be read. And like I said, I went to my Italian translation to see if it brought out any of that. And and it it really just kind of treats it in a similar way. And so it's hard to, <laughs> to really <laughs> get at what, what maybe uh, other people had interpreted this as, as they were translating, right? Um, so I see this phrase, with a curse to judgment. And it's one of the ways it could be taken, I thought, which would be interesting, would be as if the Lord is coming – and his coming is as a curse to judgment, a curse upon the act of judgment, as if he's, he's coming to condemn judgment itself, which is kind of ironic, right? And I just thought that was an interesting type of imagery that as we get into the rest of this section it would kind of fit with how Christ has characterized it at multiple times that, that his coming would be sort of a dismissal or a doing away or, a, or a, a, a cursing or a putting down of the practice of judgment. Christ says, don't judge. That just kind of stood out to me as a possible interesting way to take this verse even though I really couldn't ever concede that that's how it was tended or understood originally by the saints. In any case, I see an epistemic thing going on here that we've talked about before, because in the second part of the verse it says, Yea, upon all the nations that forget God, and upon all the ungodly among you. That is, Christ's coming is perceived by those who, who don't view God in a repentant way who don't who are ungodly it's seen as a curse it's seen as a judgment in an epistemic way but it's not by necessity metaphysically that way
1: right yeah yeah and and, and like the way you're framing there is like was this the way they intended it or is this a different way we can like look at it because in, in a lot of ways these apocalyptic writings, uh, you know, really take in what's known as dispensational millennialism. <laughs> I, I, I tried to say it. man. Millenarianism. I tried say it. Yes, thank or you. Or <laughs> just
0: millennialism.
1: <laughs> millennialism. Pre-millennialism. There it is. <laughs> so it's dispensational pre-millennialism. There we go. Hey, I think it's the first time in years I've said it correctly. This is a very 19th century way of looking at Scripture. And it's not just for Latter-day Saints. I mean, this is a very... A very common way in which, especially Mormon evangelicalism, you know, Methodism, and and all a lot of the different uh, denominations who believed in the second coming and and this pre-millennialism, w- what was going to happen directly before the thousand years came into being? And a lot of this was that Christ would come and destroy the wicked. That Christ would come and by destroying the the wicked, and there was the rapture. And all, there were some denominations that started to bring in the rapture. Now the rapture is not in this we're not a rapture type of people. But that Christ comes down and he personally brings the kingdom back. And then there's a certain amount of tribulation that that is there. And then Satan is bound and the millennium is, you know, happens. And then Satan is, is loosed. Now the different denominations believed in different ways, how Satan is loosed. Some of them believe that he's actually tied down. And then I don't know if it's just like he randomly found the key and unloosed himself. And so I was like, surprise, and God's like, whoops, you know, I, Nephi for that to happen, God
0: posits a different way of that happening.
1: Yeah, right. But but Latter Day Saints, the Book of Mormon has a different way of looking at that, which is more—it's the righteousness of the saints that that binds Satan, right? Um, so it's different ways of looking at it, and and that's why Latter Day Saintism—you I, I, can't say Mormonism anymore. So Latter Day Saintism, uh, you know, it's evolving. You know, it's, it's sometimes it's a moving target. And so that, that gives us a little bit of leeway and freedom of saying, you know what, Joseph and his context in his day are really inculcated by the fact that everything is really judgmental. Everything is very wrathful. Christ is going to come back to kill every, all the wicked, kill all the bad people. And in doing so, then that really ushers in the millennium because you know how can it be bad if all the dead people are dead? Right? Yeah, well, the, all the bad
0: people, righteous people can't be righteous until all the wicked people are first gone. Like they're being held <laughs> back in their righteousness <laughs> until all the wicked people are dead. Then they can finally be righteous, right? I understand right. that's sort of a straw man way of presenting it. But in essence, that's the statement. That's the argument,
1: yeah. That's ultimately what it boils down to. If we're going to be reductionist, for me, yeah. that's really what it boils down to. And in doing that, it it kind of shows the, it kind of really paints a weak God in that particular way, that even though God is the most powerful thing to come and kill everyone, so he's powerful that way, but his doctrine is so weak as it, it can only happen once he's there to kill all the bad people, just like you said. So it's his, pr- pr- Millennialism, uh, uh. Millennialism is is this really fascinating concept of how the end of days are going to be. And I also like Ben that how you brought up the difference in writing. You know, when we were talking beforehand, you're like, Section one thirty two is where Joseph ended up, and Section one thirty three is kind of like this is how it started. And you can we can really juxtapose one the language of one thirty two and the language of one thirty three, and we can see just how. Those, you know, 13 years or so, 14 years really separated Joseph's language. Like it really evolved. What he's looking at, what he's thinking about, what he's contemplating really evolves. And it's kind of interesting to see where he ended up from where he began. But yeah, this whole concept of how he's differentiating the millennium from his contemporaries. And then how that gives us room to be like, so what was Joseph thinking? What was God actually doing? Because if God is coming down to really shift the perception of what Joseph, knew, what how Joseph understood it in his day and context, in, in a way, it gives us a little bit from a theological point of, point of view. It gives us a little bit of wiggle room to be able to, like you just came in with, with verse two and say, um. Maybe it's not like we've always interpreted it. Maybe there is room here to be able to see a different type of God in these pages that even if Joseph saw it in the context of his day and time as a, as a wrathful, vengeful God, he still saw it differently than his contemporaries. Mm-hmm. And by seeing it differently and coming about doing it, and then how it evolves, because this, these ideas very much evolve over time. Joseph had very few things that he like set in stone that remained set in stone in the exact way that he did it. Uh, you know, things evolved. Like, for instance, the temple ceremony. Joseph never. Joseph wasn't alive to see the full com- complete temple ceremony. Everything that we see of the complete temple ceremony as we see it today was really a product of Brigham, not Joseph. Mm-hmm. And so there's just a lot of things that is contemporary for us Latter-day Saints today that we may look back on Joseph as the originator. But Joseph really just kind of more got the ball rolling and then things evolve over time to see what we have today. So the it gives stone us a little bit of wiggle shallow,
0: room. The stone out of the mountain. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Sorry, without hands. Right. Well, it's the same concept, right? You know, it's it's <laughs> yeah. moving down the hill, and in in that way, it gives us a little bit of wiggle room to be able to say, hmm, maybe God's not the wrathful, vengeful, spiteful God that we've always interpreted Him. If Joseph could, like in section seventy-six and section eighty-eight, can possibly redefine the cosmos and heaven to see a a God that was far less wrathful and vengeful and spiteful than, than what it ever been. Yeah. Then maybe it gives us a little bit of wiggle room to do the same.
0: You know, we really, I think we really do have some, some fuel or justification is not the right word, but some, some uh, backing for, for this approach Um, If nothing else but the phrase that we get throughout the Doctrine and Covenants that's the imperative to the missionaries that is, say, nothing but repentance unto this generation. And it's like, if, if the whole thing is that we are constantly trying to persuade others to repentance, then what is repentance? Constantly trying to view God in a new, fresh way closer to who he truly is. And so if he presents to us a revelation, we can take that and constantly learn from it. As we gain experience, we can then bring our experience back to that same revelation and reinterpret it again, because what we're doing is repenting. We're coming to see God more for who he is Based on not just what the scriptures say, but then our actual relationship with God, because that's what they're pointing us to, right? Um, the scriptures aren't pointing to themselves. They're pointing us to Christ, to God. And so if we go in that direction, then we will find that, you know what, the, the scriptures can, can then be uh, revitalized again to push us even closer to God. And and I see that even just going into verse three here. Like it says, For he shall make bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of their God. One of the things that came to mind as I read this verse this time was that lat those last two words, their God. And or, or I'm going to take the phrase: "See the salvation of their God." You know, we really was it the Thomas Burton quote that you know it's our idea about God says a lot more about us than it does about God. That right. That the salvation that we see is of our God, just like in that verse before. What those who chose not to see God or. Um, know God or the ungodly it talks about, the coming of Christ was as a curse or as a judgment, right? And as opposed to those that have come to know God and experience him and experience his love, it's a totally different type of um, maybe anticipation or even experience, right? All the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of their God. You're going to experience what you've, you're prepared to experience. I would think that that experience, while won't necessarily be exactly what you expect, will definitely drive a person forward to a greater understanding of who God truly is. In, in many scenarios so much of what we we do experience is what we're we are prepared to experience.
1: Yeah. I like that a lot. Well going on here with 132 Ben. Going on, I'm looking at 132 on one, one side, sorry. Going, here, going along further on 133 w- I'm kind of struggling because I'm like we've covered this and we've covered this and 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 it it is really an interesting throwback and and as you said it's it's interesting to see why they included this on the on the end when when we've already had this flavor before and what is it about this but yeah this very much ushers in the the whole concept of Christ coming back and the news of New Jerusalem and and the you know the hundred forty four thousand and you know. in like in verse fifty one, I've trampled them in my fury. So you know, so here we have wrathful, vengeful, spiteful, fury. God coming back a little bit, but, but then you know, then what she had to say was 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 so helpful. But what I also like is yet we're still seeing this concept of things melting with fire, with him coming along and burning things, and, and you know, even going back now to the you know the burning, you know, it'll leave neither neither. Branch or or root or branch, right? Yeah, and and so we have the the Malachi story coming in, and, and I love that it's these same verses that we see Joseph carrying through his whole whole life it's like there's it's like there's a series of like 15 verses that Joseph carries with him his his whole life that he keeps expounding from and you know even when we did uh, a, couple, a couple sections ago i think it was what is it 130 131 or or 132 you know just before 132 or maybe 130 where he starts quoting from all the different uh, all the different scriptures 130 and you can see that this is how he's kind of getting his his I Spark. His spark. I like that. So when you when you get that spark going, you can see that he's he he, he takes a question, he takes a scripture, he takes this, and he just thinks about it, and he, and he ponders over it, and, and he he kind of cogitates on it, and then these things come about because usually we'll see there'll be a scripture that you can tell he's been thinking about. And another scripture that he's thinking about. And all of a sudden he'll weave he'll the revelation will basically weave a story between scriptures. And it's like, how does this scripture follow from this scripture, follow from this scripture, follow from this scripture? And in a lot of cases it works out. There's one way do we have to be careful though, and, and I'm glad Joseph does it in a particular way that he does. I've also noticed in a contemporary situation that you know this is what's called proof texting. But it's where you take a scripture out of con, you know, you you take one scripture in one context, but when you take it out of context, you can give it like any meaning you want. Yeah. And so you can take this scripture out of context and that scripture out of context and this scripture out of context and then weave whatever message you want as though that's the meaning of those scriptures all woven together. And that becomes highly problematic at time. I know Matthew Bowman from Claremont, who who I study under, has a couple of articles on common consent about about that uh, that way of that and that's a lot of the way that modern day end of days scripture prophesying works. And, and in fact, even I think it was last year uh, or the year before. Um, COVID has my ears all messed around, but but there was a really popular popular LDS-based end-of-days video that was going around from from this guy who had like weaving together all of these scriptures into this one particular narrative. But the problem with that was proof texting, is you take all of these scriptures out of context, and if you take them out of their context, then it's like – I mean, it's highly problematic because all of a sudden you can tell whatever story you want to. It's like choose your own adventure. Sure. But so, so what that does is you have history, 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 history. Copy paste. Yeah, copy and paste. You know, you take this one thing out of its out of its uh, out of its context and and turn it into that that meaning and say, look, the scriptures mean my meaning, right? Jesus is coming tomorrow. But you know, trusting what Joseph is doing, you know, this is a little bit different. But I think what happens is that when we end up doing this in a lot of cases. We just got to be careful what we're doing. You know, his his particular way of doing it in the in the LDS tradition is is scripting the way that the modality of Mormonism is going to work. But when we do it today, we've got to be careful of when that happens today because. <sighs> Like I said with this video, it became very popular. I lost count the number of people who sent me this video. Have you seen this? Have you seen this? Have you seen this? Yeah. And and that's actually what Bowman's article is about in Common Consent. I think it's like the you know if you go there right now and and uh, and look it up. I think it's like the third article there. Um, but it's it, it speaks to that. So just we got to be careful about how we do that in the last days. And I know that I've been guilty of this in my life of taking all of these scriptures and weaving together a story that isn't exactly what the scriptures meant. But man, I, I could weave a really good story. <laughs> I could weave <laughs> a really good doctrine. But you know, as you learn and you progress and you become a little bit more affluent with the scriptures and you're like, you know what? It's more honest just to understand it in the context that it was given than to pull it out of its context to mean something different. And I like what Bowman did on that one article is that he he said a lot of the times what this ends up boiling down to is that if we take a scripture out of context and we give it a modern day meaning, that in that way, what we're, event- we're essentially saying is that when that scripture was given a 2,000, 3,000 years ago, that those people didn't really understand the true meaning of that scripture. And that true meaning of that scripture wouldn't actually be understood until 3,000 years later out of some right. random text by a random people over in a completely different part of around the world. Right. And so he goes, think of it in these terms that if President Nelson got up and in his, t- and gave a talk in, in general conference and you just took one paragraph out of one particular random talk that he gave. And then in a thousand years, people interpreted that one talk and took it out of context saying that the Latter day Saints in his context had no idea what he really meant. And nobody would really even know what he meant until a thousand years later when they take that particular paragraph out of context and apply it randomly to their own day. Right. Yet this is what we do with scripture all the time. Right. Yeah. So
0: Yeah, what I see Joseph Smith doing here isn't so much like pulling in scriptures to explain what the scriptures mean. Rather I see him pulling in scriptures to explain what he means. He's using the language of the scripture because he's like He's trying to express an idea and he's like, oh, there's this scripture that expresses that idea well. And so I'm going to pull it in and use it. But it's not a commentary on the meaning of the scripture. It's rather the use, the co opting of the scripture in order to form um, a, a particular narrative. Right. Yeah. And, and, and I see that actually the person that I think most masterfully did that was Neil A. Maxwell. Because like, he would take, um, certain phrases from scripture and, and develop a talk around these phrases and, and paste them together in order to, to say something. But he wasn't assigning meaning to the scripture that he took it from. Rather, he was using the meaning that already existed in the scripture to enliven this other thing that he was talking about. Right. Yeah. And, and that's what I see Joseph Smith doing here with a lot of this stuff. And how do I see that can be valuable? Since you brought up the whole like taking a verse out of context, the one that stood out to me was verse 53. I loved how this is phrased. And it's it's basically word for word straight out of Isaiah. It is Isaiah 63, 9. So this verse says, In all their afflictions, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. And in his love and in his pity, he redeemed them and bore them and carried them all the days of old. I don't see Joseph Smith here saying, hey, Isaiah said this and this is what Isaiah meant. Rather, I see him having read Isaiah and saying, hey, Isaiah expressed this idea the way that that really fits in what i'm trying the the idea that i'm trying to convey about christ's character and what his coming is going to be like restating it in various different ways over and over he gets here to verse 53 and i just i like how that fits in there i thought it was interesting as i was reading through this to come across in verse 52 just before it and now the year of my redeemed is come and they shall mention the loving kindness of their Lord and all that he has bestowed upon them according to his goodness and according to his loving kindness forever and ever. I had just listened to the podcast that you and Riley did on, on loving kindness. So I I didn't know if it was Mm. a case of it's like you hear a phrase and then you start seeing it everywhere. Or if it was just like coincidentally, no, it really does show up in that verse. And that phrase I had noticed in the Doctrine and Covenants before that I could remember. And then it popped up there in that verse right after I'd listened to that podcast you did. So, I thought that was interesting.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that is interesting. I, I don't think we pulled it out of uh, 133. I think it was originally because it's a Buddhist term as well. Right. And so, I, I think it was actually Christopher who had deemed the talk or had, had labeled it. And then he he got ill you know, on, on the day. Mm-hmm. He's like, I can't do it today. And he called me. So, I I think it actually came from Buddhist, but I think it's fascinating that it shows up. Nephi
0: uses the phrase as well.
1: That's fascinating.
0: Talking about Christ,
1: yeah. Oh, so that's that's cool for verse 52. Well, do you have anything else to talk about 133 on? Is there anything here that stood out to you?
0: There there were several times in here that I, despite the common narrative that you kind of spelled out about Christ's second coming being destructive of the wicked – Really, the overall feeling I got about this were these multiple instances of him just talking about wanting to save everyone and um, and how he goes about that. He talks about different tribes. And in this context, as I was reading through it, he talked about Ephraim. He talked about Gentiles. He talks about Judah. And I almost saw this not as these literal descendant tribes, but more as like the, the different um, – the different types of people and their perceptions, almost like a celestial, terrestrial, telestial type of mentality, right? Okay, these these people with this certain type of mentality, this is how we're gonna be able to reach them. And the people with this sort of type of mentality, we have to reach them in this way. But ultimately in the end, Christ is going to reach everyone. And here in verse 47, and he shall say I am he who spake in righteousness, mighty to save. I think that's from the, the New Testament, but just that phrase there really hit me hard. Mighty to save. There's not anything that, as Paul says, can separate us from the love of God. Yeah. Um, he's not scared of our sin. Our sin is not more powerful than his love. He is mighty to save.
1: Yeah, that's a great outlook on that. You know, it's, you know, a bunch of times I know you've, you've expressed it as well. It's just that, that idea that to experience grace is to recognize when God has come after you to save you and to be there and to sit with you when you've recognized you have not earned it. And yeah, so, so that mighty to save there, you know, it's, it's very much a grace-filled way of looking at it, to see that, that, that God who will sit with you even when you do not feel or even... For our social institutions and the rules that certain religious or social institutions maintain that this is sin and this is not sin, and maybe you're not living up to the institution's rules, and maybe even that institution speaks for God, or, or maybe even y- you place a certain value or rules on yourself when we feel that we aren't adding up, that we're not worthy, that we're, that we're, we're not doing enough. And whether or not we are not following up on the rules or whether or not we don't feel like we're adding up personally, and yet still in those moments that, that God comes down to sit with us and we experience that moment of grace of just being there with the divine and the divine with us. And it's the non accusatory voice of love. And what that is, because we expect the accusation, we expect. Hmm. there was a moment the other day you know we had had to sit with my son and he likes to video game a lot and so we're like you know kind of had to go over a few things with video you know the time (laughs) 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 and uh and he's so highly proactive everywhere else this is one of those things but you know there were a few things we were talking about so you know i I don't know if if those kids that get so hyperactively focused on what they're doing that sometimes they ignore the world around them and then they get perturbed with the world around them. So you've got to kind of like sit down and talk to them about, hey, you know, maybe we need to back up with this. And That's tell not them just kind kids. Of, okay. <laughs> you're right. <laughs> That's like, I, I call that Tuesday. <laughs> right, I get it. Well said. And so, you know, at that point, you know, just take a step back. And on this particular day, you, you know, sometimes you're feeling really raw. And, and just to be there present with my son and – at the end of it, he's like, so I'm not in trouble? Then I said, no, I just, I cared about you. I wanted to know how you're feeling. I wanted to know how you're doing. He's like, wow. He goes, I was expecting I was going to get in trouble. And I was like, well, how does this feel that you're not? And he's like, you know what? I, I feel really, really good. And, and not just because of the fear, you know, you expected to get into trouble and you're not, but just the fact that there's a different kind of awareness that transcends the relief of the fear that you thought you were going to be punished, but that it's different. It's not just the relief of, of not being punished. It's this other sense of coming in into a, a, an awareness of the world, and an awareness of God, where He just sits with us, and that's sufficient. And we're like, wow, all of my expectations, all of my cares, my context, my worldview, everything I thought was, now I can just, it's like you just lay that burden, whole burden down. And he came up and we gave each other a really big hug. And it's and like everything just corrected itself right then and there. Like there didn't need to be more consequences or punishments or anything else. It was just a sitting, a sitting with each other and talking with each
0: other. It's an edification instead of a condemnation. This really is the most powerful message I see in this section, just to drive that point home. I think there's Multiple verses in here that, that really drive this point home. I, I read verse 53, which I think is, is really profound. And I, I love that he pulled that out of Isaiah to, to kind of to drive that point home. I go over to verse 57. And for this cause that men might be made partakers of the glories, which were to be revealed. The Lord sent forth the fullness of his gospel, his everlasting covenant, reasoning in plainness and simplicity. And then down to verse 59. I'm curious again what your uh, scripture says in verse 59. And by the weak things of the earth, the Lord shall thresh the nations by the power of his spirit. Does yours say thresh with an E or thrash with an A?
1: It says thrash with an A.
0: Okay. So that, I, we talked about this a long time ago. That is uh, incorrect. Um, whoever... You know, scribed for Joseph for these revelations, the E's looked like A's, and so it got perpetuated as thrash, which is actually like a violent act of whipping someone, <laughs> instead of thresh, which is is goes along with the whole like harvesting um, metaphor, which is just a way of separating grain from chaff, right? Yeah, <laughs> and. It really is a different thing, right? <laughs> and so um, the correct thing is thresh, not thrash. <laughs> that you thresh the nations, not thrash them. <laughs> um, and then A little bit yeah. of a difference. Yeah, yeah. And then, and 67, which, which really spells out some of what I was talking earlier about, about Christ's grace and, and mercy. When I called again, there was none of you to answer. Yet my arm was not shortened at all that I could not redeem neither my power to deliver. And that's what I was talking about before with mighty to save, right? That even if we don't listen, God is still there. His arm is stretched out still, as Isaiah often says. And his power to deliver is not weakened by our ignorance,
1: I like that. I think that's a great place to leave 133. It's a great way to cap that. So moving into
0: section 134, there's a historical background to this. Different manuals will treat it in a different way, but there's one in particular that gives, I think, the the right succinct background and, and treatment of this. So I'm going to read through this because the section heading only hints at a few things here. Uh, again, it says a declaration of belief and an opinion concerning the same. So So here goes on the historical background for section 134. A general assembly of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was held at Kirtland, Ohio on the 17th of August, 1835, to formally accept the collection of revelations to be published as the first edition of the Doctrine and Covenants. After the priesthood quorums and then the congregation unanimously accepted the revelations, Elder William W. Phelps arose and read an article prepared by Oliver Cowdery on marriage. This was on vote ordered to be published also in the volume with the revelations. Then President Oliver Cowdery arose and read an article, which is interesting to note. I don't think Oliver Cowdery's um, statement on marriage was published in the Doctrine and (laughs) Covenants. Joseph Smith's was. (laughs) That's interesting. Then President (laughs) Oliver Cowdery arose and read an article of governments and laws in general. And this, likewise, was ordered to by vote to be published with the Book of Revelations. Neither of these articles was a revelation to the Church. The article on government was included in that edition of the Doctrine and Covenants as a statement of belief and as a rebuttal to accusations against the saints. The reason for the article on government and laws in general is explained in the fact that the Latter-day Saints had been accused by their bitter enemies, both in Missouri and in other places, as being opposed to law and order. They had been portrayed as setting up laws in conflict with the laws of the country. The Declaration of Belief has been included in editions of the Doctrine and Covenants since its proposal in 1835, when it was read and voted on. Quote, the Prophet Joseph Smith and his second counselor Frederick G. Williams were in Canada on a missionary journey, and the Prophet did not return to Kirtland until Sunday, August twenty third, one week after the assembly had been held. Since the assembly had voted to have the articles on government and marriage published in the Doctrine and Covenants, the Prophet accepted the decision and permitted this to be done. It should be noted that in the minutes, and also in the introduction to this article on government, the brethren were careful to state— That this declaration was accepted as the belief or, quote, opinion of the officers of the church, and not as a revelation, and therefore does not hold the same place in the doctrines of the church as do the revelations. So, all that to contextualize here with section 134, that a lot of the, you know, some of the things we're gonna touch on here in regards to what the saints are stating about their, their belief. Section 134 is often brought up, I think, in civil discourse or, or discussions about the proper role of government, um, and it's brought up sort of as a trump card by members of the church to to say, "Well, you you have to believe in this way because Section 134 in the Doctrine Covenant says this," and and um, I mean, there's a lot of different ways to respond to that, but just along the lines of how they're trying to play it as a trump card, it's. It doesn't hold the water that they want to because it doesn't stand as as that type of authoritative revelation as like the mind and will of the Lord. You can't impose this on a person um, in the same way that you might say, "Hey, this is a revelation," right?
1: Yeah, yeah. One thirty four really is weird. What uh, weird? One thirty. It's really different from the rest of the context of the of the doctrine and covenants. Simply because of its non-revelatory status, because it was included in its context, we've got to remember this was in 1835 as well. Mm-hmm. So they're still they're still in Kirtland. They're having problems, they've already been kicked out of Jackson County in Missouri. So they they've already had the first expulsion. And now they're having just like you said, they're having a, a legal problem about things happening legally. So 134 comes along, and you know, Ben, you and I have both used this. I've I've used this a lot in my old politicking days to like justify a particular ideology, right? A a particular way of thinking about things. And this really takes it into section 98. Uh we we can go into section 10, I think it's 101, and and what it says about the Constitution. And this really becomes a backbone, but what's fascinating about 134 is just how American republicanism republicanist? Republicanist? I don't know. <laughs> I don't I don't know what word I'm looking for, but it's it's a very Republican document. And in this really harkens back to the type of liberalism of the founding fathers. And as a system of belief, we can at least see where these early church leaders are getting their ideas about government. Because there there was is this fascinating conversation about how the latter day saints saw themselves as the literal manifestation of americana that you know this this new american republic was this new free market of of religion no other country at the time had a free market of religion like this before you had your you know your state religions which is what most everybody had and then you had and it's still kind of today where you then any other religion is kind of the the secondary ones that just just other people who aren't really in the the center of our of our nationalistic religion. You know, these are the other people who do these other little side religions. And so the United States really accentuates and comes into this new way of religious expression with this free market way of kind of picking and choosing. And so religion began to develop because it could, it can kind of sell itself in different ways to the people. And they started to compete with the message And this this message lands for this person, this person lands for this, this message lands for that person. And so there was this kind of free market vibe. And the Latter-day Saints, because of all of these um, these narratives of the millennium, which we just read in 133, about, you know, you you had these new ideas coming about, if not from the view of the Hebrews from 1825, but there were other sources that viewed the Indians as some form of house of israel so this isn't just the latter day saints with the book of mormon as a remnant of the house of israel some people thought it were they were the literal 12 tribes so you had zionism millennialism you had the the 12 tribes with the with the the indians and all of these things are forming together with the latter day saints and they see themselves really as a manifestation of all of these american virtues the, this is where kind of like marky e. peterson and i think in the set in 1970s came out and talked about how the whole purpose for the american republic was for the restoration of the gospel this is a this is a very, very Day saint way of looking at it and so the early saints saw themselves in this way they when, were the
0: culmination of the american experiment like it's it's uh, you know desired outcome
1: yeah yeah the, the culmination and and not just the natural effect of it but god's chosen directive yeah the, the whole reason america was even established was because of this moment they were they were the embodiment of the entire reason this government was created and so when they started to get pushback from missouri and from kirtland and they started having legal problems they started to to have kind of an identity crisis Yeah, because at some point it's no we're the we're the embodiment of this whole american experiment like like this is us like we're it this is the restoration of the gospel of jesus christ is here and this is the whole reason why this whole thing even happened and everyone else didn't see it that way you know especially the the (laughs) missourians the missourians didn't see it that way and the missourians whether or not they were wrong or right They at least had the authority. They eventually booted them out, right, in 1838. And so by the time they get to Nauvoo, the people there are saying, well, no, you are not like us. So the Missourians, for instance, if if you read the history of of the Missourians, they thought that they were the real Americans. In fact, the Missourians invoked the spirit of 1776 and saw themselves as the modern-day American revolutionaries. revolutionaries of of 1776 kicking the British out. They, they, they kind of thought themselves as like kicking the Mormons out was like kicking the British out. And so they thought they were the embodiment of the American Republic and the Mormons thought they were the embodiment of the American Republic. Everybody thinks they're the American Republic, but the Latter-day Saints end up on the losing end of that debate the whole time until they get out to Utah. And they still kind of end up on the losing end of that debate. <laughs> and until, until 1890, when they give up polygamy. Yeah. And that's how a lot of historians talk about then how, The church and the the Latter Day Saints start to try to out America all the other Americans. They finally Americanize, so to speak, right?
0: Americanize, yeah.
1: And and so this really becomes their attempt in the meantime of being able to proclaim their Americanness. Their belief systems are American. They they are rooted in the. In the foundation of American constitutionalism, we are, not only are we like you, we are the embodiment of what this means and God is backing us. And so that's really kind of the spirit here in section 134. So this is, this is a statement of belief, but it's, it's a lot more than that. This is a, this is a whole socio-cultural, political, cultural thing that they really believed that this whole American experiment was specifically designed for them. And it continues. This idea continues all the way down into the modern Mormonism in the 1970s when we still repeat that. We still today repeat that the whole reason why the United States Constitution was created was to give space for the restoration of the gospel. That's still a narrative in the church. Mm-hmm. So we still kind of, we still kind of practice that. We still think that that's still a way that uh, we operate. Sure.
0: And, and one of the interesting things here about section 134 in the historical context was that it, it, it was frankly true that, uh, after what was going on in, in Missouri and the appeals to, to authorities, to the state, the local authorities, the state authority, and then the federal, uh, government for redress and protection were reviewed by the Saints as largely ignored. At the federal level, they were pretty much ignored. There were people that tried to help them, but it didn't really go anywhere for various reasons. Even though the Saints like repeatedly tried to to take those avenues, as it kind of spells out in here, you know they should should, you know, use those methods to for redress of wrongs, they were continuously disappointed. really it it dealt a blow to their. Their confidence in the American system as it was, as it existed. So they would come out with things like this where they stated their belief in the, the idea, in the theory, in the concept, but really in their private and then sometimes even public discussions, they would decry the corruption and of the, the politicians of, of even the system itself. This really festered back and forth and came to a head with Joseph Smith, you know, and, and some of his political involvement. What's so fascinating about some of the statements in here is is that you can find their their performative contradiction within the the narrative of of what was going on in in Nauvoo, especially with like with the Council of Fifty and so forth. Right? We have things like. Let's go over here uh, to verse seven. We believe that rulers, states, and governments have a right and are bound to enact laws for the protection of all citizens and the free exercise of their religious belief, but we do not believe that they have a right in justice to deprive citizens of this privilege or prescribe them in their opinions, so long as a regard and reverence are shown to the laws and such religious opinions do not justify sedition nor conspiracy. The fact is that what was going on with the Council of 50 was pretty privately done. It could have been considered a conspiracy commit sedition against the U.S. government because they were setting up a quote-unquote kingdom that was to replace the Constitution because the Constitution had failed them. And so that's what's interesting here about Section 134 is that yes, this statement comes out in in 1835, but by the time uh, 1844 rolls around, you know the Saints are are pretty ready to give up on the corrupt American system and build their own. In fact, they kind of do that in Nauvoo. The Nauvoo Charter, they really go pretty far with that, their own independence. There's several things they do with the Nauvoo Charter that <laughs> that, that frankly are akin to like declaring independence. <laughs> kind of like a declaration <laughs> of independence. It gets them in right. a lot of trouble, but but it does work out for at least a few years. You know, it works for them. So
1: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I think it's it's in April of 1844, and I always try to memorize a specific date, but you know, in section 98, you have a revelation from God that comes out and says that, Hey, you need to befriend the constitution, which is the constitutional law of the land. Right. And so this is, this is really the scripture that like Ezra Taft Benson and a lot of the brethren, you know, that they appeal to for their foundation in, in American government. But then we learn in these new council of 50 notes, they end up getting released in like 2017 that now, we find out that there was a revelation that rescinded section 98 that it says you're no longer required to befriend the constitutional effect. You're no longer morally required because you couldn't, as you said, Ben build a government like a, like another internal government or the kingdom of God, or start bringing about a new political government while still ha- having section 98 as, as the operating revelation, you needed to amend it. And so, you know, section 98 was given much earlier on. It was given in 1833. Section 134 is given in 1835, and then we have this new repeal of the Revelation that comes out, and we finally learn about it in in 2017. And so it's interesting how those kinds of narratives build on each other. And so it's in April, I want to say 24th, but I don't think that's actually it, where where the Revelation comes out that, uh, that rescinds Section 98. But we then begin to kind of question how... Our belief, our political belief systems operate as Latter-day Saints, but Section 98 and Section 134 remain the front uh, edifice on our religious, our religious political narrative because <laughs> the Church doesn't want to release the Council on Fifty Notes for a very long time because yeah, just like you said, this is sedition. This is this is them actually forming a different government. Joseph Smith running for president to be able to institute a new. Theocratic democracy, as I think was Patrick Mason ended up writing about it in uh, in the, the Deseret Book. On uh, the desert Book was the publisher on the Council of Fifty Notes. You know, he's looking on establishing a theocratic democracy and a completely new system of government. And so, n- no, you can't. You can't let the United States know that that's what you're trying to do, especially when you're trying to get statehood and run your own own secret state of Deseret with Brigham Young out in Utah, right? Or if you're the saints in Nauvoo trying to establish your own political kingdom, your own political sovereign nation. It just doesn't work that way. But I think section 134 with, you know, it even begins, we believe that governments were instituted of God for the benefit of man. Really, what this does is it ends up giving divine sanction to the political state. And, and this kind of patriotic national, you know, nationalism that's coming along of, of seeing God in the formation of the secular state is a very interesting way of seeing this. You know, this, this harkens a lot back to Romans 13. And the call for it to be subject to the higher powers, and that God creates these higher powers, and there's no power but God, but God ordains that these, you know, these these uh, kingdoms are created. So it's a very biblical narrative, but yet it's still fascinating to see how they're toying with these ideas that are still very early American Republicanist Republicanistic, and trying to meld that into this new construct of uh, of restored gospel narrative. Yeah, they're very much
0: the ideas of their time. Right, these these really portray uh, pretty mainstream uh, American views on government uh, for the 1830s. Um, even when we get over here all the way to verse 12, um, and we have uh, this this verse, which really I think anybody reading this in 2021 probably is going to be a little uncomfortable with this, even if they can't articulate exactly why. So verse 12 here says, we believe it just to preach the gospel to the nations of the earth and warn the righteous to save themselves from the corruption of the world. But we do not believe it right to interfere with bond servants, neither preach the gospel to, nor baptize them contrary to the will and wish of their masters, nor to meddle with or influence them in the least to cause them to be dissatisfied with their situations in this life, thereby jeopardizing the lives of men, such interference we believe to be unlawful and unjust, and dangerous to the peace of every government, allowing human beings to be held in servitude. So, there's a lot going on here historically that couches this verse here mostly what we have going on here is there are the abolition movements at this time uh, leading up uh, you know well before the the civil war and the general consensus of the northern abolitionists is that yes we we want to use the political system to eventually edge out slavery but we don't want to do it so quickly that we cause chaos and disorder and lead to riots and rebellions and stuff. And this is written on the tale of various slave uh, revolts, but in particular the the Nat Turner one of was it eighteen thirty one, and yeah. and so this is fresh in the in the minds of of Americans at this time, and and they're very afraid of of this. Type of thing happening, right? Of, of slaves revolting. And so it's almost like this little disclaimer here where it's like, yes, you know, we don't, we don't believe in slavery, but we also don't believe in upsetting the status quo such that we cause violence and conflict, right? Kind of tries to straddle this here, which which again was was a very mainstream northern abolitionist. Stance at this point. Now that stance moved more and more towards proactive uh, abolition beyond something like verse twelve says in the years that followed that. But for the time, this is pretty standard.
1: Yeah, you you know that that Nat Turner rebellion of eighteen thirty one was a really big marking point in the United States history as far as how they viewed uh, plantation slavery. Because up into that point, they'd given a lot more freedom. Well, I got to be careful with how I say this. On the plantation, in or- as a way of control, in a way mechanism, you know, a lot of the plantation owners had given the slaves what they thought were more autonomy to be able to make for, th- for themselves a uh, different congregations, and so you had these black churches that were on plantations. And the slaves had began to form their own autonomy, their own language, their own way of being able to worship in these, in these like plantation, these spaces that they were able to carve out themselves. And what happened is Nat Turner ends up having this rebellion. I think it happens in, in Virginia. This sends a shockwave through the country in, 1830, in 1831, that by giving the slaves a little bit of freedom, as it were, they immediately usurp it and and revolt against their slave owners. Mm. And, you know, looking back on it in retro, you're like, you know, it's 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 almost comical. That's what I said. It you know, so
0: this should make somebody uncomfortable. It should should probably make 2021 people feel uncomfortable reading this verse at least a little.
1: Right. and, and it almost sounds comical if it wasn't so tragic. Yeah. And so, you know, I want to be very respectful of how I talk about this because we still deal with these kinds of narratives. But yeah, the the time and the place there were they were taking the stance, especially after what had happened down in Missouri with the W.W. W. Phelps and the whole printing press fiasco and, the, and the, the, that slave fiasco that he had when he printed all that going on that had happened just a, a year or so before this. And so the church now is kind of taking an about face and being like, you know what? We don't believe in in the emancipation here of, of of any of these things, and so it's a very anti-abolitionist vibe in in being able to uh, into yeah. the early church record on on slavery wasn't wasn't very good. <laughs> so, yeah. it just we'll kind of leave it at that. But I I think it's interesting here in section one thirty four. One of the things that I've I, I've talked about a lot, and I know that you've talked about that Ben is this idea that. There's three main reasons that 134 gives for why man-made governments are established by God. And of those three reasons, what's fascinating is what they are. It's basically that man will not be a slave to each other, (laughs) which is ironic considering what we're just talking about because a lot of time black, the, the, the black race was not considered fully human so they didn't fall into this context of being a slave one to another. It was white men wouldn't be a slave one to another. Uh-huh. That the, they would be protected in their inherent and alienable rights and that if anybody violated those rights they would be punished. So those three things. Not to be a slave to each other, to be protected in your rights and to punish those who violated those. What's fascinating about those three reasons is each one of them Assume a society of individuals who are not living according to the two great commandments, loving God and loving our neighbors ourselves. Because what happens when you have a society of individuals who love God with all their heart, might, mind, and strength, and not even second, not even, even an epistemic real second to that, but really next to it is that you love your neighbor as much as you value and love your own life and love yourself and you love yourself because you are in love with God and God's in love with you. And you've had that experience that if you truly love your neighbor, the line and distinction between me and thee becomes really gray. If, if it exists at all, it's not black and white. It's not mine and yours. It's just there's a love there's a relationship there's there's something that forms there the barriers break down and in that particular way are you going to violate someone's rights who you who you truly love and who truly loves you no for those who sin against me as it were who who violate me or who come against and, and I and I know they truly love me and I truly love them am i going to want to punish them in return and the answer is no. Am I going to want to enslave them? And the answer is no. And so it's fascinating that each one of these reasons, this given in 134, for the reason the main reason why we have governments that government God institutes governments, for instance, is because we fail to live up to the two great commandments. Because society of individuals who adhere to those two commandments, that's the Zion conversation. That's where that's where we have begin to have that conversation. And that's where that whole Richard Rohr con- concept comes in, that unity is not uniformity that is that everybody's the same, but unity is diversity that's held together by love. I love you to do it differently than me. We can't even really begin to make sense of that statement until we begin to work on loving God and loving our neighbor as much as ourself. Because that does not mean they're going to be like us. It just means that unity is diversity held together by love. That I love you to do it differently than me. That allows for pluralism, for other people to be different different than us, and maybe even not to love us. But it's our love that becomes the cohesive element of society that binds that together and allows it to exist, even among differences.
0: Rather than... Some shared nationalist narrative, right?
1: Right, right. Yeah, now that, that
0: that is interesting. You brought up, you went back to verse one again. Go, we believe that governments were instituted of God for the benefit of man. You know, we've talked about this before, and we talked about it even when we did Elias Liberty podcast that that this concept of God instituting government or even like a particular form of government even if we see examples of it in the scriptures, which we can point to, to several is not a statement um, of God necessarily coming down and establishing a celestial standard. We pointed to the example of 1 Samuel chapter eight, where, where God literally reveals to the prophet Samuel to go and anoint a king. But then he explains that, he did this because they rejected him. So this anointing of a king and establishing of a monarchy, while it is done by God and specific revelation of God, and this person is, is anointed in a messia- literal messianic way as king, it's done because of their rejection of him, not because of their assent or righteousness trying to, to seek God. It's because of their turning away from him, and so we can take this statement here. You know, governments were instituted of God for the benefit of man, and say, you know, um, if that if that ever is the case, that something is instituted of God for that, we don't have to look at that as some celestial standard. We can mourn the fact, right? We can mourn the fact that we weren't prepared to to live. The two great commandments. Thus, we're given what we might term this this lower law. Having said that, the great thing about the Sermon on the Mount is that it doesn't require any particular context in order to be lived. It can be lived in any context whatsoever, no matter what government or circumstance a person exists under it is completely state agnostic so to speak right <laughs> and that is the beauty of of the teachings of christ
1: i like that state agnostic <laughs> <laughs> i'm going to adopt that i'm going to write that down <laughs> No, it's, it's really true too, because, you know, I, I've used the example before in talking about 134 and 98, a context of 1 Samuel, because in 1 Samuel, we have this idea called the Samuel principle. And what this is, is that we had the early Israelites who are ruled by judges. And Samuel is the last prophet judge, and he's the last uh, judge there is the priest who's, who's over the people. And his sons aren't necessarily the best of people, as it were. And the people come to Samuel and, they asked him, they said, hey, make us a king like everyone else. Your sons are getting, you're getting old. Your sons aren't exactly following in your footsteps. So I think now's a good time to transition. Give us a king like everyone else. And having a king was always seen as this anti-God kind of way of government. And one of the main things about the early Israelites, especially in coming out of, out of Egypt, is that all of their appropriations, all of the laws that they had, there was no real appropriations for... For an army, for a conscripted army and for and for swords and shields and things that that those kinds of things and you know this is a point uh, Preston sprinkle makes in uh in his book Fight right and and in that, what happened though is that Israel is kind of in the crosshairs in some ways of you know three major war war mongering empires, even though they're kind of an out of the way little little uh little kingdom. And in doing that, though, since they're, they've never really been given an appropriation of, of actual military uh, weapons or of, or of an army, uh, they've been told that God will protect them. And at the time, kings were kings because they collected the taxes from the people, and they were—they're the ones who were able to build up armies. And navies, as it were, but they were able to build up armies, and and they could protect themselves physically. And Israel never really had that capability and that capacity, so they were, always felt vulnerable. So to get a king was to be like everyone else, to be able to protect yourself, to take up the sword to defend yourself violently, to really kind of give yourself power over God, because you know God only helps help those who help themselves, obviously. And so if God only helps those who help themselves, we need to help ourselves by making swords, even though that was the point not to have swords but to rely on god that god is actually going to help you without you helping yourself that's the point and and so when they wanted a king samuel the prophet is distraught he goes to god he's like hey they've rejected me well he doesn't explicitly say that we kind of infer that because god comes down he says they've not rejected you they've rejected me which is kind of to say it sounds like samuel's like hey god you know they rejected me that i should be their prophet and and God's like, don't think too highly of yourself. They haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. Nevertheless, give the people what they want. And and that's the Samuel principle there is that God will give us what we want, but careful what you want. Careful what you wish for. Because then when they are given the king with Saul, it ends up all the bad things that they prophesied of a king happened. And the people rejoiced when they picked a king because number one, the king was God appointed through the prophet. The prophet picked the king. And in fact, God said, here, I'll give you a king, but I'll also give him rules. Like, he has to follow my law. He has to read the law every day. He has to follow the law. And here's a couple of criteria so that he doesn't overrun and destroy you. So the people... They think they're given a king because of their righteousness. They have this new government established by God, picked by the prophet even, and and he's even following God's law. Aren't we righteous? Aren't we blessed now because we've become protected like everyone else? But they don't realize, and this goes back to your point, Ben, about be careful of ascribing a celestial principle just because God established it, in that their government was established by the prophet, Yes. Given the law by God, yes. But it was given in the scenario that they had rejected God. They rejected that God would rule over them. Nevertheless, God gave them a king. So when we look at the Constitution and we look at these these systems of government that came about because we have a society of individuals who do not love God and who do not love their neighbors themselves, and the whole reason why we have that government is explicit in 134, there needs to be a little bit of humility here given that we recognize that th- just because we have a constitution that may even in fact be divinely inspired, that doesn't mean it's the celestial standard. Now, different general authorities have had different opinions on this. They have mm-hmm. not been unified on this. As Ezra Taft Benson, J. Urban Clark, Marion G. Romney, they all held that you – know, I think it was Ezra Taft Benson who had even said that the constitution will be the standard of Zion. It'll be the, It'll be the kingdom that builds Zion. Uh, but most of the general authorities of his time, the ones that were in the corner of of his day disagreed with him. So this is, this is not a consistently held opinion, even by the majority of the brother and, or even by the prophet himself, they all reflect saying, yes, this was divinely inspired, but what does that even mean? We don't, we don't know. You know, a lot of these things, even president Oaks now has walked back on a lot of this, even with his recent really kind of strange and out of place talk in conference, um, talking about the Constitution, it's one of those things that historically he's even looked and he says there's a lot of things that we think are inspired in this Constitution, like the three fifths clause or other things in the Constitution that were later amended away. He's like, I don't see anything divine in any of that. So what is actually divine in this? So he has a couple different talks where he even tries to argue to find out what those are. So there's no unanimous opinion among the brethren of the church what that exactly means. There's a lot of opinion, but there's no real absolute doctrine. So I know a lot of people who want to really firmly hammer home. And I used to, I used to be one of them who, and in fact, I still have all the books. In fact, I can point right now on my <laughs> shelf, all the books that I memorize, like Prophets, Principles, and National Survival, and an enemy has done this. And, and you know, when Benson gets up there and he, you know, he says, everybody needs to read Gary Allen's, none dare call it conspiracy and all of Benson's books, I have them all in Mary G. Romney and J. Clark and David McCain, and I've read all of that. But in context, the majority of the brethren did not adhere to Ezra T. F. Benson's political beliefs. He was outspoken, sure, but he was not into the majority of thought of the brethren in that context. Matthew Harris is the professor from Colorado. Has done a fantastic job in his recent book about uh, Benson. He's written two books about Benson, and really kind of shows that there were a lot of tensions going on behind the scenes, and a lot of disagree, a whole lot of disagreement. So, as Latter Day Saints, as we're reading one thirty four, we read one section ninety eight. We actually get into the history of what's going on behind these sections. We need to have a lot of humility in simply saying, I. I may not know as much as I think I know, and these may not mean, even though it seems so explicitly clear that this is exactly what they mean, these may not mean exactly what I think it means in my modern context, and then to have some grace and some wiggle room to be able to dig a little bit deeper into how we can bring about Zion as opposed to becoming enablers of the state in this in this whole political process.
0: Yeah, and I would say as the word opinion is used here, you know, declaration of belief and opinion to even if we have deeply held opinions that we feel are very strong, that we temper them and uh, and not become rabid or militant about them, <laughs> right? So,
1: <laughs> Indeed. Well, do you have anything else more to say about 134, Ben? I don't think I do. All right. Well, I think we did okay for time. We are a little bit earlier than normal, but maybe not as fast as we thought it was going to go. So so I'm happy with the middle ground. It's great. Well, next week we are gonna we are gonna hit on sections 135 and 136, and we'll go from there. It's we're kind of out of revelations now, so when we get into 135, this is this is the martyrdom section. This is where Joseph and Hiram Martyrdom and this is John Taylor's uh, farewell and in his words there. And then in section 136, we jump far ahead to, to 1847 and Brigham Young. And so this is going to be a revelation given from uh, Winter's Quarters and basically on the uh, the journey going out west. And and then we'll finally kind of con- start to conclude here with uh, a section 137 is an 1836 revelation. Again, these are like appendages that, that we're starting to kind of appendage some of these conversations. They vote on these revelations to be included, so we kind of st- we give them a section number at the end, and then finally, it section one thirty eight with Joseph F. Smith that we have uh, from nineteen eighteen of all places. Yeah. So nineteen eighteen. So we know we jump pretty far ahead, but we are concluding. We're 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 done. We're done with the revelations of Joseph as they are canonized in the Doctrine and Covenants. We did that last week with the one outlier here with section uh 137. 137. Yeah, we're that's the only other uh revelation that he has, but we are now moving into the death of Joseph and, and concluding this. We're getting closer to the end of the year. And it's been an interesting uh a very interesting year in how we've in how this has even come out for me and you know Ben, uh, you know thank you a lot and in all of your insights, you know it's really helped me pull a lot of this this beautiful god out of the pages and has and really made that present so i very much enjoyed this year so
0: yeah it's been good for me too well
1: good well everyone thanks for listening this far and uh, we will see you back next week as we tackle 135 and 136 but until then i'm shiloh logan
0: i'm ben peterson
1: thanks for listening